Hello and welcome to the Wigtown Book Festival podcast. I'm your host, Peggy Hughes, and on this very special episode, we imagine different versions of the places we live in. We're imagining the future of Scotland with Imagine a Country, edited by Val McDermott and Joe Sharp, and we're looking into the past and present of dear old Galloway with poet and historian Hugh Macmillan. We start off today's podcast with Imagine a Country, Ideas for a Better Future, which is published by Canongate. It's the brainchild of crime writer Val McDermott and Joe Sharp, a geography professor at St Andrews University. It started off, as you'll hear, as a cunning plan at last year's Edinburgh International Book Festival and evolved into asking people from all walks of life to ponder the possibilities of life, work, love and a whole lot more in a future Scotland. So this brilliant book has fairly recently come out from Canongate Books, Imagine a Country. But I wondered if you could take us back to the genesis of the book, just that I've led to believe it started life as many stories do at the Edinburgh International Book Festival. Could you tell us a wee bit more about that? Well, as indeed, as many books do, it, it started at the Edinburgh Book Festival. And, and I, have to, I have to confess that there was a certain amount of red wine involved in this gestation as well. <laughs> Which but, is going to nobody who knows us. Last year's book festival had as its theme, We Need New Stories. And a lot of conversations over the course of the book festival about how the right were hijacking the agenda with their sloganeering and, and lack of content and that we needed to find a way to rebalance the conversation. And also we, we listened to Ali Smith at the book festival last summer and Ali is, is always a beacon of hope in the darkness there's something about her work that always manages to shine a light when it feels darkest, that you know, she, she somehow injects hope and imagination into our lives. And we thought that this message of hope was something that needed to be carried on further. And we were talking about this with friends late one evening, as I say, over the, the requisite glass of red wine. Before I knew it, we'd been talked into doing this book. Even at that point, and of course, in many respects, things this has become all the more important. It felt so important to have discussions about the nature of where we wanted our country to go, about the kind of country we wanted to be. In some respects, those debates really emerged quite powerfully in around 2014, around the, the independence referendum. And we'd both been really struck at that point about the very productive nature of discussions and debates, that people were talking about the future of our country, about what kind of uh, what kind of Scotland people wanted to live in, in a really kind of dynamic and quite inclusive way. I mean, some people talked about it being very divisive. Our experience was quite different, that people were debating, people were arguing, and that it was a very vibrant uh, time politically and culturally. And we felt that last summer, looking around at the nature of debate, so much had been pushed into 280 characters or less. And that, you know, if you disagreed with somebody, therefore, uh, you were kind of other to them. And the, the sense of a kind of productive, respectful, but dynamic and heated discussion had had broken down a little bit and we wanted to try and do our little bit to encourage perhaps a more reflective, um, a more respectful, but no less sort of dynamic and energetic discussion about where we wanted to go as a country. And I think uh, we also wanted to come up with some concrete suggestions, some positive ideas, rather than just a sort of hand wavy, it would be so much better if we were this, it would be so much better if we were that. So we thought it was the way to go was to ask people for positive, for concrete suggestions about the kind of country they wanted to live in. And some people did take that in terms of very specific, really quite, I suppose in some respects, quite small ideas, but that we think nevertheless have 
could potentially have quite significant effects, and others really went back to first principles. So you know, there was that kind of range of responses to how we get to a different country. That's a lot that this book, this book does do a lot, but that's a lot of kind of brilliant ideas and impulses and a brilliant spirit behind it. How on earth do you begin to just thresh out what and who and how? And because it's quite a short gestation period as well. You mentioned gestation period, Val. Just like it's this conversation started in August last year, and here we are. So what were the next steps? Well, we we decided that uh, if we we're going to take this any further, we actually needed to get uh, professionals on board. I feel like <laughs> we Shanghai Jenny Brown, the agent, and dragged her off for coffee and ran this past her. And Jenny thought, yes, this was a good idea. And we we wanted to have a, a Scottish publisher, so I I stepped away from my usual publisher, Little Brown, and we approached Francis Bickmore at Canongate, who was extremely enthusiastic. Suddenly, we we, we found ourselves having gone from a few drinks late at night to to having the prospect of having to put this book together in pretty short order because we were all agreed that this needed to be done pretty quickly, that we wanted to have it out there in the world before we came into the run-up of the the Scottish parliamentary elections next year so that we could actually talk about these ideas in in a wider context. And so our next step was to run away to New Zealand, where we both had a a visiting professor gig at the University of Otago in Dunedin. And it turned out that 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 worked out in a really positive way for us as well, because it took us out of the normal rhythm of our lives and allowed us to concentrate on this. I wonder about that distance geographically as well as sort of psychologically and of the daily usual pressures. Did that help in thinking and editing about Scotland but being so the opposite side of the world. I think it really did. I I don't know if you know if you've if you've been to Dunedin, but it is it, it calls itself the Edinburgh of the South, and so it was a it was kind of an eerily familiar and yet slightly unfamiliar place to be doing this. All the street names come from Edinburgh, but all in the wrong place. It has the the largest statue in the world to Robert Burns. In some respects, it was quite a familiar landscape, and yet there were things that were slightly different, which brought some of those differences to the forefront uh, all the more and made us reflect a little bit about the differences between New Zealand and, and Scotland, which, you know, they're countries in many respects with similar size, similar ambitions, and, and we might hazard to say at the moment, similar leadership. So that was really helpful in a much more kind of everyday sort of a way. It was the longest time that Val and I had ever been in the same place together. Yes. Actually getting into a routine to edit this together was incredibly helpful. We Because we were sort of 11, 12 hours out of sync, we got on with with what we were doing during the day and then at the end of the day contributions started coming in which we'd always intended to leave till the next day but we got so excited about opening each email as they arrived to read the contributions and and tell each other what had come in Uh, so we ended up having quite a few late nights it was good that it wasn't just coming in during the working day when you'd be in your office and mm. I'd be in my office in a different department. They came in when we were sort of together at home and I think that, that allowed us to focus in on what we were doing. And we were just delighted yeah, as mean, they did come in because of the breadth. Yeah, we, we were kind of afraid that we were going to get like, you know, 50 answers that all said basically the same thing. Yes. You know. <laughs> um, but what we in fact got was a wide range of things. I mean, there are some themes that recur and there are some things that are just quite outliers that, that we never have occurred to us in a million years. We got really excited as the responses started to come in by that range of what people came up with. And it was kind of tales of the unexpected. People did not come out with the things we expected them to come out with. You know, but a journalist talking about the need for beauty, love and compassion. And President of the Royal Society of Edinburgh talking about the need to change the notion of fashion. Yes. <laughs> People really went the extra mile and and thought about what would make a difference in a world they wanted to live in. And some of the things seemed, uh, on the face of it, quite small and insignificant. Uh, The wonderful Janie Godley 
gave us a cartoon which said that every child should have soup on a Friday made by a granny. And on the surface, that's quite a small, superficial thing. But when you unpack it, you start to think about the number of kids who don't get a hot meal, the number of kids who don't have connections, those cross-generational connections that are so important that we've so often lost sight of, the relationship between grandparents and grandchildren. And that's something that's been really brought into focus sharply during this COVID-19 lockdown. It does feel like a sort of astonishing time for a book like this to land at a time when I think, you know, so many people will come out the other end thinking, is this the life I wanted? Do you know what I mean? Like, is this how can I enact change? I suppose a question for both of you would be, what do you hope that someone picking this book up will do to change things? Well, I think one of the key elements that we wanted to make a point of with this was how we work with politicians. We deliberately did not ask politicians to contribute to this book because we figure they've got plenty of opportunities to express their views and plenty of pulpits to speak from. So we wanted this to be, uh, if you like, the people speaking to our leaders. But we also made sure that this a copy of this was sent to every member of the Scottish Parliament. So we can hold their feet to the fire and say, this is what people would like you to make happen. But also there's lots of opportunities, I think, for people to uh, enact activism in their own lives, uh, to take things into their own hands, to be part of the change. And and I think there's a lot of things in this book that people can uh, engage with. You know, just the idea that I was talking about there of, of, you know, making soup for children, as it were, which sounds like a daft thing. But we have a real problem in this country with people who don't have enough to eat. And that problem is going to get worse post-COVID-19. People have lost their homes, people have lost their jobs. So we need to go and, and volunteer at food banks, volunteer with charities that work with the homeless. There are so many things that we can do practically in small ways, but in bigger ways as well. Everybody can do something in their own small way, and some of us get the chance to do something in a bigger way. And I think a lot of people have been reflecting upon this. We're at, we're at a moment that there's a sense that it could go one of two different ways, that particularly at the beginning of lockdown, I think there was a, a real sense emerging about people rediscovering a lot of the things that were important. Uh, you know, hearing birdsong in the in the city, not hearing the traffic rumbling by, having more time to spend with family within the household, not having to travel always uh, to work for those who were still lucky enough to be able to work from home. A great deal of discussion about the new normal. Do we just want to go straight back to what we were like uh, before lockdown? One of the things that we've heard from people who've, who've been reading the book is that they found uh, collectively in some of the neighbourhood groups or, or reading groups or book groups that they're in, going through some of these chapters and talking about how it could be relevant to them. Of course, the threat at the moment is that, that we do go back to life as normal, that the uh, that states become ever more centralised, that uh, certain multinational companies become all the more powerful. You know, we're we're all encouraged to become super consumers again, uh, like we were before, and th- that we lose everything that that did happen under lockdown. And I think one of the really important things that the response to COVID has done is to show how certain things that we were told were inevitable, the politics of austerity, for example, our political choices, that crack in political life. That, that suggests that, you know, it isn't, there is no alternative. There are always alternatives. And the important thing is to always be able to imagine those alternatives. And one of the other inspirations for this book was some, some of the writings from Afrofuturism. I'm a big fan of speculative fiction. And this idea that if you cannot imagine a future that's different, how do you enact the politics to get there? The arts are so important not just in this, I think at the moment they're being talked of as a, as a kind of luxury we can't necessarily afford because we've got to put all of our money into the important things. And yet, 
I really find it incredibly important that we're able to imagine things differently, that we can hear different experiences, different voices, different ways of being in the world. We encounter that difference and we can think about it so that we can imagine how we might make the world differently. And it's particularly ironic that uh, the arts are kind of being thrown under the bus at the moment because it's been the arts that have got people through this lockdown. People have been streaming uh, all sorts of things on their screens, not just not just TV dramas, but also people have been putting stuff up on YouTube. There's been opera, there's been theatre, there's been all sorts. And people have been reading much more widely and listening to music, making music. This has been what has got us through lockdown. It's never felt like a more important, like art has never felt more important than when you're stuck in looking at four walls. And that said, I mean, it does for a lot of people, you know, in different circumstances, it, it can be feel like quite a hopeless time, you know, a very, very, very challenging and very difficult time. Um, and yet this book, I think, is a book that sort of embodies a real sense of hope and imaginative purpose. I just wonder how you calibrated that as editors. Was that front of mind that you wanted it to be? Hopeful. Well, hope was where we started from, and it was a huge relief and a source of joy to us that so much of what came back to us was hope. And so what we got were immensely positive responses. It started in a way with Ali Smith, and, and Ali's piece in the book is just mm-hmm. joyous. It's about hope. It's about recovering the planet. It's, it's about the importance of youth working together with age and with imagination and creativity to save the planet. And it's beautiful. It's beautifully written as well. So that was one of the, the, the real advantages of this was that we, we got these positive responses. It seems really important to me, and particularly in, in moments like this, that we can talk about hope, that we can talk about things that could be done differently and could be done better if we kind of push hope out of the picture then it becomes very difficult, I think, to enact change. We want to encourage people to read things in, in the book and, and, then, and then to feel moved to change their own lives, to make change. And I think, I think one thing we haven't talked about, when we invited people, we were trying to invite people across the political spectrum. We weren't sort of inviting people that we thought were going to say what we would say. This is not an agenda. This is not a kind of, in any way, a singular voice. We wanted it to be uh, more of a, maybe not a cacophony, but you know, certainly a, more akin to kind of overhearing a variety of different conversations when we're able to go back and sit in cafes and eavesdrop on people, that the idea is that all readers will come across things that they agree with and things that they disagree with. Even just the way we we put the different contributions together, we're we're kind of hoping that all readers will come to the book and recognise a few names, will will dive in and have a look at the piece contributed by their favourite author or someone that they've they've heard of, and then just move on to the next one. And we've just put them in alphabetical order. And just through that kind of juxtaposition, come across a different argument by someone who perhaps they otherwise wouldn't have heard from. To come right back to the start when you were saying a debate has 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 just shriveled to the 280 characters. It's also so sort of polar and and so on. I mean, where where would you both like to see and to have those conversations play out? What do you think will be a more helpful way for people from opposing sides of of, a, of any given argument to to kind of be able to discuss? Well, I mean, I would hope, and unfortunately, this has been taken away from us uh, by by the virus. I would hope that these are the kind of discussions and conversations and not adversarial debate, as it were, that we could have at things like book festivals, mm-hmm. uh, that we could come together uh, and have, have discussion. And I think there are organisations in the country that are trying to encourage these kind of conversations to get out of their silos and talk in a more wide context. Uh, I think there's also a lot of, of space for communities to have these discussions 
Uh, and I think one of the things that has come out of, of the COVID virus in a positive way is that people have become much more community-minded in a lot of ways. You know, people have been supporting their neighbours. Um, people have been looking after the more vulnerable members of their community in, in many respects. And I think these are areas where we can all talk to each other. And it's just about starting a conversation and acknowledging that there might be difference, uh, but just the process of talking. I also think that through education is a is another way that these debates could be had, and it's it's really um, in, incredibly gratifying that one of the one of the most common responses we've got to the book is that people want to see other essays, want to see other other people's responses. And a number of people have suggested to us that this would be a great exercise for kids to do at school. I've been talking to some of my colleagues about possibly having some of our um, university students uh, doing this as well to continue that that dialogue. It's very interesting how many of the pieces of the, in the book touch upon education and the importance of education. Some of it's in school and you've got Chris Brookmeyer talking about the importance, for example, of teaching primary school children about philosophy so that they have the language to understand things that are different without uh, resorting to a kind of populist language of, of otherness and, and uh, kind of absolute difference. But also also, people are, in the book are talking about a kind of education, a, a curiosity, a learning um, that goes on throughout people's lives, continues that kind of that journey into understanding the world, if you like, that, that we start at school. And I think that's a really that that would be a great place to continue some of these debates. We've always talked about this book as as a starting point that it's not. Uh, you know, it's not comprehensive. It's, you know, it, it certainly doesn't cover all of Scotland, but it's the beginning of a collection of voices and, and understandings and uh, conversations that we that we really want to see continue. Someone suggested the other day that all year seven kids should have uh, have this set as part of the, <laughs> their work for their, their curriculum, the curriculum, um, that they should have to write an essay about the country they imagine. So we'll be having a word with the First Minister about that. <laughs> A huge thank you to Val and Joe for talking to us. Imagine a Country is available now from all good independent booksellers and we heartily recommend it. What a read. Coming a little closer to home, we speak with festival favourite Hugh McMillan. Hugh is a former history teacher and accomplished poet and he talked to us about some of his very many past, present and future projects. Hugh McMillan, joining us from home in Penpont. How nice uh, of you to chat with us, Hugh. Thank you. I wonder if we could kick off by hearing a wee bit more about your SPL champion role. And that SPL to the uninitiated is not the Scottish Premier League. It is, in <laughs> fact, the Scottish Poetry Library. Congrats. That sounds very nice. What's that all about then? Well, I think we've been gurning on for years from down here, from the southwest, that we don't get a fair crack of the whip. And there's cracking writers down here who simply aren't showcased simply because they're in a rural setting and don't network and all the rest of it. So we've been silently, well, most silently, noisily given about this for years and the Scottish Poetry Library has called our bluff and so I, I think uh, they've appointed four champions and uh, one for the North, one for the South and two for the, the Gaelic and Scots to showcase new talent or emerging talent or neglected talent from our various areas and at the end of it I believe there's just like in Highlander there, there's a big fight in which there can only be one champion <laughs> Is it going to end with a big dance-off? That's right, but no, big big swords, yeah um, How do you 
then intend to use that? How will you specifically uncover the, the new talent? What, what's your tactic? Well, I'm, I'm quite well acquainted with people down here anyway, really, especially the southwest of the region and Ayrshire. I'm taking the remit to be south of the central belt, so I'm relatively cognizant of what's going on. But And where I'm not, I've, I've asked advice already, so I sort of know where to look and, and what to look for and so on. So I think it's five commissions that each of us have, are going to come up with, and these people will be showcased in, on the SPL media and all the rest of it after having a small fee. Oh, lovely. It is a really nice opportunity. I was going to ask you how people sort of listening here, how they could engage with the work and if it was going to be new work. But I guess you're going to be asking them to produce something new for yes, the SPL it's all new work. I think the idea is that it's a text poem and then a video poem. So I know that one of the people I'm thinking of uh, approaching specialises in visual poetry and animated poetry and so on. But it doesn't have to be that. But I think a video of the poet sort of reading their work is the kind of minimum sort of thing. Yeah. What will you be looking for then? I mean, it sounds like you've got no end of possibility possible people and poets to, to commission. What will make Poet X stand apart from Poet Y for you? What is it you look for in a poem? I think specifically I'm looking for younger people with great with a lot of potential who have got something skillful to say and a skillful way to, to say it, if you like, and who haven't been showcased really in any sort of bigger platform. I'm kind of looking for that and uh, I'm also looking for, I've got an idea of one or two sort of people who've just been writing away for years, you know, they've been writing away for 20, 30 years, are extremely good poets but simply don't push themselves forward aren't ever seen anywhere and all the rest of it and it'd be good for people to see this, the quality of their work I love the idea of it being about the neglected or the overlooked as well as the shock of the new that's really nice that you'll potentially be able to shine a light on people who as you say have been hard at it for a long time I mean even people of huge sort of talent recognised talent like, like Willie Neal you know Willie Neal the great Galloway bard who lived in Parton all his life it's often said that if he'd lived in Edinburgh or been more able to sort of network with people and meet the right people and so on, he would be sort of you know, as a superstar of, of, of Scottish literature. And he is a superstar from the quality of his work. But, uh, you know, we've always had this feeling that uh, uh, there's a geographical kind of bias against people who choose to stay in the so-called sort of peripheries of Scotland. It strikes me there's a fantastically lively network of poets and writers in the southwest. Oh, there is now. Completely different from when I was but a lad. It was a different story altogether. But there's been book festival, obviously, transformed the literary landscape to an extent. And the east of the region, you're in Dumfries, you've got the Stove Network doing brilliant stuff with written word and spoken word and so on. And also in the borders in Hoyek and, and yeah, it's, it's completely different from the way it used to be. So to speak about some of the bits you've been working on, then you've got the SBL champion work that's going to be coming up. But I wanted to ask you about your long and happy association with the Wingtown Book Festival, specifically a project that you did last year, which can still be viewed on the website where so much of the activity, of course, now is playing out. That was the Galloway to the World project. Could you tell us a wee bit more about that project and how you came to be involved? It fits in with a lot of the stuff I've been doing because I've been telling, you know, complete lies about Defeat and Galloway for a long time. And when people want a sort of not necessarily the history of the place, but uh, my imagined histories of Dupreece and Galloway. They always sort of come to me for entertainment value. And uh, this particular one, I think in Wigton last year, there was a, a mapping of the sort of region of Galloway internally and the uh, Gaelic poetry and uh, the Scots poetry and so on. And I think the corresponding part of that was to link Galloway to the world by talking about the great things that Galloway had done to contribute to the culture of the world and so on. And the illustration that shows 
absolutely brilliant illustrations. I was so delighted when I saw the illustrations that he did to accompany the project. It really, it really makes it. Aye, they are. They are absolutely. Great. I wish you, Rainer. I. What were some of the um, maybe more surprising discoveries that you made in the course of this project? Well, not so much discoveries, but things, as I say, things that we kind of knew about anyway. The Dumfries and Galloway connection to Mons Meg, for instance, that, the giant cannon that's outside Edinburgh Castle. Everything good that's ever been invented in the world, there's some claim that Dumfries and Galloway did it first, or parts of Galloway did it first. Uh, so that that was... Uh, the idea that, that Mons Meg was, wasn't actually built in Belgium, as the name Mons would suggest, but built just outside uh, Delbiti. That kind of stuff, it's, it's interesting. Complete lies, of course, but nonetheless, it's, it's interesting. Where did your own enthusiasm for sort of connecting history and contemporary culture? I've always really loved Scottish history. I always felt that uh, Scottish history got a bad deal. I still feel that. It's, it's, it's the thing that makes me most angry in the world is how Scottish history is an adjunct, see as an adjunct to English history in any sort of, not in schools necessarily, not in Scottish schools now anyway, but in, in every history magazine there is and in, in television programmes about history and so on. Uh, you know, Scottish history comes as a, pure, as a pure relation, as a footnote to everybody else's, and that always bugged me uh, greatly. And so I did, I did uh, a book with Hugh Bryden of, of Scottish history poems, and the idea was to sort of redress the balance by telling people about Scottish history through poetry, but it, it became warped and, and strange and made up as usual. <laughs> the good thing about ancient history is, I mean, or medieval history, it's all made up in the first place, so you can't make it up more than it has been already. So I find that history is a very creative thing. People think it's about facts, but it's not really. You taught, or st- do you still teach? I taught history, yes. I've, I've, so I've given up now, yes. It seems to me that your work, there's just that, aye, that weird surreal through line <laughs> through a lot of, you know, your poetry. Where did that come from and how much of that was allowed in when you were teaching it? Well, kids always used to love you telling them stories about things and, and you could uh, not necessarily tell lies, but the interesting things are strange little stories that people can connect with that nobody knows about. You know, they might be part of the, they might be a thread in the in the mainstream of history, but they're sort of neglected. I love ferreting that kind of stuff out and telling people about that. People react to funny stories anyway, don't they? And uh, stories about their own history that they don't know about. There's a great appetite for history, but not necessarily, you know, what you see in the telly all the time, the Tudors. Can I stand the Tudors? People in Scotland should be violent whenever they see the Tudors on television. They should throw a brick through their TV set because half the lowland population of Scotland died through war or famine thanks to the Tudors. But if you if you believed history magazines and telly programmes, the Tudors are the sexiest and best things ever. If you were in charge for the day and you could replace the Tudors on the telly with one sort of set of personalities from Scottish history, who would you choose to well, shine I'd, that I'd, light on? I'd probably choose sort of uh, dark age people, people from the so-called dark ages, you know, when uh, uh, Scotland, or even just before the so-called formation of Scotland, I, I would choose that lot because they're very interesting and uh, there's lot there's un- untold, that's a completely sort of untold story. Uh, hopefully I've got a book of what if Scottish history poems coming out, what if this had happened or what if that had happened in, in Scottish history. And in Scots, that's been great fun. What if St. Columba had been strangled by, you know, and, and all the rest of it. What if penicillin had been invented in the 16th century and... Yeah, I was interested in your um, pestilence poetry project. What is the hook for you with pursuing then the what if? Do you know what I mean? Where does it begin for you with a poem? Well, the major hook was that a publisher came and said, "Would you do these what if poems?" That was a major. Nice kind of hook. (laughs) That was a major hook. Uh, A lot of it came from stuff I'd been thinking about anyway, and you know it fits in with a lot of stuff 
generally what if Scottish people knew about their history, were honest about their history, for instance? I mean, that's a theme that's of contemporary sort of significance, isn't it? Whether we're going to be honest about our history. And my own opinion is, you know, and I'm a passionate believer in Scottish independence, but I do believe you have to be honest about your past and address uh, the issues of the past and no pretend they're all somebody else's fault. So there's several poems about that uh, in this what if thing. And uh, the narratives of history that you're served up are not true narratives, you know, you need to sort of address them as well. The narrative that England's to blame for everything that ever happened to Scotland, that narrative uh, is, is as pervasive, I think, as in the whole of the UK, the idea of the British Empire is a, a good thing, you know, which is a Victorian narrative which still hangs on, isn't it? Do you see that as a sort of chief function, if you could put a function on, on the work of your poetry, if you see what I mean, consciously trying to subvert narratives? I'm not trying to consciously subvert them, I don't think, but it's important to say that there's another side to nearly every story you can think of. And there's nothing more annoying than self-righteous people telling you what the story is, what the truth of any particular matter is. Now, I'm not saying there's no such thing as objective truth, there must be, surely. But nearly always there's another side to the story that, that should be addressed and that needs to be looked at before being dismissed or, or at least needs to be acknowledged. Absolutely. I did want to ask you about, even though, you know, they're about these great sweeping kind of, you know, historical, often difficult, you know, obviously difficult, violent histories. Your poetry is really funny. <laughs> Why is humour important to you in your work? I do it naturally. I don't do it sort of once upon a time. I thought poetry was a kind of joke that you had to put a punchline in and so on. I think when I first started writing poetry, when I look at some of my poems uh, when I first began writing, I'm quite embarrassed by some of them because they're just too sort of brash and self-consciously trying for a laugh, you know. But I mean, I, humour comes naturally to me and I think it's a real in for people who are listening to your poems or reading your poems, you know. They get your message and they're attracted in. They're pulled in by the humour you put in it. Other Poets do the same thing. They're the Billy Collins is my god from this kind of thing, you know. So many serious things said, but yet in such a sort of arresting and humorous way. I'm glad you mentioned Billy Collins because I've been keeping a wee eye on your Pestilence Poems site, which just seems to be a lovely opportunity for you to share a load of favourites or, or to or to dis, dis, discover or rediscover poems and to share them with people. Can you say a bit more about that wee project and how it got going? We just got this uh, plastic tripod off Amazon that you could film yourself on. So I just began to do that and I thought I would do a sort of wee daily blog where I would blather about poets that I liked. But after about 18 or 19, I then had the idea, well, why don't I ask another poet to contribute? And I didn't know whether that would be technically possible and all the rest of it, but it has been so really the major part of the Pestilence Poems Project has been other poets filming themselves from lockdown and me featuring them in the blog and, and talking a wee bit about, about their poetry and various other sort of wayward things as well, you know. I mean, it seems to be a lot of people are turning to, as is often the case with poetry, people are turning to it in a difficult time. Do you think that's so? Do you think more people are seeking out poetry just now? Not just poetry. Everybody is attempting to, you know, the creative response to coronavirus going to drive us mad. I wrote a wee poem about it, actually. Just a cynical wee poem about the amount of the degree of creative response to the, the virus. It's called Flattening the Curve. Uh, bombarded daily by poets, topiarists, cake decorators, cartoonists, expressive dancers, all committed to seeing us through this toughest of times. I'm reminded of the fact that out of the babies enrolled in the very first creative immersion project in America in the 1960s, 10% became serial killers. 
really, that's a very lethal silence you have in there. You? It's interesting, though, isn't it? It's, it's an interesting yeah. statistic, yeah. Thank you again to Hugh. Macmillan's Galloway takes the reader on a whimsical tour of Dumfries and Galloway through the people, places and myths of the area and it will be out with Lueth later this year. Thank you so much to Val and to Joe for joining us and of course to Hugh for joining us and thank you very, very much to you as always uh, for tuning in whether it's the first time or if you've been with us throughout the whole of lockdown we appreciate it so much and we're very glad to have you with us for the journey. Uh, We hope you'll join us again next week but for now take very good care of yourselves and bye-bye.